I'm Jason. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Skip Don's Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at Simon and Garfunkel's You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies, a B-side to a 1967 single. One of the most fun parts of doing Skipped on Shuffle is when we do our research before an episode, we, you know, we, we try to find out as much as we can about the song and about the artists and about the album and whatever. And sometimes we find stuff and, and Jason and I, we're, we're, you know, it says right on our website, we're big music geeks. And so you'd think we'd know a lot, but it's always fun when we get surprised. And this, this time we were surprised, both of us, to find how massively successful from an album standpoint, from like a sales standpoint, Simon and Garfunkel really were. And so we're going to touch on this later, but one of their albums was the best-selling album for three years straight. Like, so the album came out and like, you know, obviously an album comes out, it's the best selling album of the year. It's like, oh, cool. That's fine. But for two years after that, that's crazy. In the, in the early seventies, mind you, when there's a ton of people putting out like amazing stuff. Yeah. Like this is like one of the, one of the hotbeds of, of popular music. One of the time periods where it was so prolific, where, you know, the music industry was so much different. It was so it wasn't so much on like your commercial appeal in the sense of like, you know, what do you look like and what do you sound like? And do you have a lot of Instagram followers and all this stuff? It was just like, do you have good songs? Can you play a show? Like that's what we're looking for. So is the, the bar was so much lower for getting releases. So there was so much music being put out and yet for three years straight, people were just buying the same album over and over again. That's how massive Simon and Garfunkel really were. And it's interesting because when I think of Simon and Garfunkel, I think of this very quiet, simple folk duo that writes these beautiful melodies and sings these really pretty songs and whatever. I just don't think of them in this way. So it was really surprising for me to, to learn all this stuff about the group as we were doing this research. And I guess the other thing you don't think about during this time, too, is these people aren't only putting out albums, they're also putting out singles. And that's what brings us to our song today, You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies, which a lot of Simon and Garfunkel fans probably missed at some point because it was basically a B-side. And for Skipped on Shuffle, I don't think we've done too many non-album tracks. I think for Alice in Chains, we did one. That might be the only one. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the only one. So it's fun to, to shed some light on songs where even if you're a Simon and Garfunkel fan and own all the albums, you might not have this one. Uh, so let's jump into the history of Simon and Garfunkel and get to today's song, You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies. You should know that a woman may wise Still you try to manipulate me You don't know where your interest lies So Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel grew up together in Queens, New York, attending the same schools. In sixth grade, they appear in an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland together and start performing in a doo-wop band and also as a duo. They were strongly inspired by the Everly Brothers and began to write songs together. They wrote and recorded one of their first songs, Hey Schoolgirl, 
and they were overheard by Sid Proson, who owned an independent label called Big Records. Simon and Garfunkel were 15 at the time, and Proson had to speak to their parents to get permission to sign them to the record company. Aww. <laughs> they began to call themselves Tom and Jerry. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really bad name. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrible. <laughs> Proson bribed an infamous DJ, Alan Freed, with a practice known as payola, which was basically you'd give the DJ money and he'd play your songs on the radio and people would hear them and you'd sell records. So he does this for Hey School Girl to get it on the radio. The single went to number 49 on the Billboard charts and Proson booked them on American Bandstand, a popular television program at the time, which featured musical performers and dance acts. The duo would record a few more tracks, but without the same success as that first single. In 1958, Simon and Garfunkel graduated high school and decided to continue their educations, unsure of the path their musical careers would take. Even though they were still on big, the Big Records label, Simon recorded a solo track, True or False, under the name True Taylor. Also a terrible name. Yeah, they're really bad at this. <laughs> this upset Garfunkel, and the two would record as solo artists while they continued their studies for the next few years. In 1963... The two of them would get back together with a focus primarily on folk music and would perform at open mics in Greenwich Village. A Columbia Records producer, Tom Wilson, saw them and eventually convinced the Columbia Record label to sign them. Simon and Garfunkel, now refusing to use any other names, thank God, <laughs> recorded and released their debut album, which was Wednesday, 3 a.m. in 1964. You're likely familiar with one of the band's most iconic tracks from this one, The Sound of Silence. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound Silence. The album sold poorly, selling only a few thousand copies. Simon would leave for England to try his luck as a performer there, convincing Garfunkel to briefly join him out there, but the two would end up back in New York and studying once more. Simon would leave for England again, record a solo record called the Paul Simon Songbook, and continue to try to make it in the music business. Garfunkel continued to attend school, pursuing even a master's degree in math. As they continued on their own paths, The Sound of Silence was gaining traction on college radio and popular on radio stations in Boston and Florida. Wilson, who had originally gotten the band signed to Columbia Records, brought in studio musicians and overdubbed the track with a more rock feel and re-released the song as a single in 1965. So let's take a listen to that version. Still remains within the sound of silence Restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp Simon was pissed upon hearing what had happened to the song, but the sound of silence had now become a chart topper in a matter of months. The record label wanted to capitalize on the momentum, and Simon and Garfunkel reunited. The duo quickly recorded and released Sounds of Silence in January 1966, consisting of many re-recorded tracks from Simon's debut album and a few new songs. That record has another classic track on it, I'm a Rock, 
So let's take a listen to that one. The album would reach number 21. Their first record would also be re-released and hit number 30 on the charts. At this time, the song Homeward Bound was released as a single, which made it into the top 10. Let's take a listen to that one. I'm sitting in the railway station, got a ticket for my destination. Mm. On a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand. And every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one-man band. Homeward bound, I wish I While starting to find commercial success, critics did complain that they were not true folk artists. This criticism, combined with a quick recording of Sounds of Silence, led the duo to take more control over recording. They would return to the studio for nine months, having total control over what would become 1966's Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. The album was more of the folk direction the band wanted to originally pursue, as you can hear on Scarborough Fair, Canical, a traditional song with reworked melodies and lyrics. Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Time would continue the rising wave of success for the duo, who supported the record with a long tour of colleges. In addition to stories of their perfectionist tendencies, thanks to the lengthy recording sessions, the duo was also developing a sense of mystery around them, thanks to their manager Mort Lewis, who refrained from booking the two for TV appearances, only allowing them on shows where they had total control over the set list and could play uninterrupted by commercials or any breaks. At this time, Simon was struggling to write new material and felt strongly about crafting albums rather than continuing to worry about singles for radio play. Simon and Garfunkel would eventually release their fourth album, Bookends, in 1968. We'll talk more about this period, which also saw them representing the soundtrack to the film The Graduate in a bit since our song today, You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies, comes from this period. To summarize, Bookends is a giant success, as is The Graduate soundtrack, and the duo is hugely popular. A song that helped make that happen and appears on both those releases, Bookends and The Graduate Soundtrack, albeit in slightly different versions, is the hit track, Mrs. Robinson.
The two got offers to do other soundtracks, which they turned down, and opportunities to act, which they take. They're both cast in a film adaptation of the novel Catch-22. Garfunkel has a major role, while Simon's part doesn't end up making it into the film. They regrouped once filming had ended, but the filming had caused the two to drift apart. But they got back together, touring, and even crafting a politically charged TV special that aired in late 1969. Simon was writing new songs, and despite their rapidly fraying relationship, the duo managed to record one last record, their fifth, Bridge Over Troubled Water, which came out in January 1970. Here's the title track. The album was more musically ambitious than their previous work, following in the vein of bookends, which we'll discuss in a minute, as they work to incorporate multiple genres into their music. Critically and commercially, Bridge Over Trouble Water was massively successful, earning six Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year, and hitting number one around the world. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, it was the best-selling record that year, 1971 and 1972. The band did a short tour for the record, and then that was it. Simon seemed most eager to end the band. Throughout the 70s, they reunited here and there. In 1981, they famously performed a free concert in New York City's Central Park. At the time, it was the largest concert, with half a million people attending. The following year, they did a world tour, but the two would not get along for long. At times, it seems a new record might be possible, but the duo continued to fight and plans were scrapped. In 1990, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At the event, Garfunkel said of Simon that he was the person who most enriched my life by putting these songs through me. Simon answered with, Arthur and I agree about almost nothing, but it's true, I have enriched his life quite a bit. Love it. Total sick burn, bro. Oof. Oof. <laughs> Despite the bitter feelings, there have been a few reunion tours over the last few decades, but all that likely now seems done given their ages and Simon's insistence that he's finished with touring and finished with Garfunkel altogether. But let's jump back to the more amicable times for the duo in the studio trying to make their fourth record bookends and the song for today's episode, You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. You may think that we're friends all right, but I won't let friendship get in my way. Indications indicate running the same riff will turn you. While Jason was going through the history of Simon and Garfunkel, he mentioned that Paul Simon, at a certain point, who is the sole songwriter of of the Simon and Garfunkel duo, he was getting bored of writing singles and wanted to 
only focus on albums. And this was a trend that lots and lots of bands were, were focusing on at the time. Uh, the 60s and 50s were, were singles years. That was when bands just they didn't even care about albums. Like It was just only singles. And then in the 70s, that's when bands started being like, no, I want to create a cohesive work that has a beginning, a middle, and an end with lots of songs and all this stuff. And Simon wanted to do that too and wanted to focus on that more, which is why Bookends has this sort of loose concept feel to it. But it is really strange. And, you know, there's lots of weird sounds on here. There's synthesizers. There's there's a track that's literally just old people talking. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. That that is literally what the track is. I think that is also the title is Voices of Old People. (laughs) Yeah, Voices of Old People. And it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's a very it's a very different sounding record than you might expect from a band like Simon and Garfunkel, if all you know is the sound of silence or, you know, or even a track that's on this album, like America, which is, you know, pretty straightforward folk kind of tune. Um, but so you don't know where your interest lies isn't on bookends, but it was recorded and written uh, at the same time as the rest of the tracks. And for whatever reason, I don't know if we even did we even figure out like why this song wasn't pushed off. It just, it's kind of a mystery. So we don't know why they didn't put the song on. I guess it just wasn't up to par or they couldn't figure out a place to put it, whatever it might be. But You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies did not end up on bookends, but it sounds like it belongs on bookends. So- Well, it's- it's funny because we we talked about how this is a concept album, but that concept only manages to last for the first half of the record. Yeah. And then they kind of just abandon the idea, it seems. It's it's a little weird how that ends up happening. So basically, the first half of Bookends is, if if you're not familiar with the album, basically goes through youth to old age, hence where the voices of old people comes in. And then the second half of the record is basically anything goes where it was leftover songs they had from when they had written the graduate soundtrack and other things they had at the time. So you don't know where your interest lies could have easily been thrown in that, that mix of songs that come on the back half of that record. And then when they re-released uh, bookends in like special editions or whatever, they include this track as like bonus tracks and stuff. Right. I think we found that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so clearly it fits on the record as a whole. It just, the original pressings, the original release didn't include it. And you know, for whatever reason why, but, uh, but Simon and Garfunkel wasn't really known for that kind of thing. You know, uh, there are a lot of like, for example, with like the Beatles, Hey Jude, was a non-album track as well. And that's one of the Beatles' most famous songs. It was only a B-side and whatever. And Simon and Garfunkel wasn't really known about that. Most of their biggest songs, Mrs. Robinson, America, I Am a Rock, all these huge, huge songs are all on their their proper records. So this song is kind of an outlier uh, in their whole catalog, not just for bookends, but their entire career. This is like a strange thing for them to have this song that exists kind of just in the air, not really grounded to any particular record. So yeah, this was a big shift for Simon and Garfunkel. And it's interesting because at the time too, Simon wants to do this concept album, but also doesn't have any songs and is struggling to even write anything. So it's funny to advocate for, hey, I want to do this idea. And it's like, okay, well, where are your songs? So at, at, at the time, he was suffering from writer's block. So Clive Davis, the super famous record executive, if you don't know who he is, just Google him and he'll have been attached or have done something to 
something you've heard or seen somewhere along the way. Um, so he's the head of Columbia Records at the time, and he's basically trying to figure out what is this band doing because I'm making a ton of, ton of money off them, but now they don't want to write singles anymore and claim to want to do this album. And the bookend sessions lasted a really long time. So we're talking from 1966 to 1968 and fits and starts. So the thing that really gets the band motivated is Mike Nichols, who's a movie and theater director, was filming what would become the classic comedy, The Graduate. The whole time he's filming, he's listening to nothing but Simon and Garfunkel, loves them, and wants to use their songs for the film. So he goes and he asks Clive Davis, you know, what, what can I do to get these songs? Basically, how much? And Paul Simon is super reluctant, concerned about his artistic integrity as a musician, if he ends up selling his music for the film. But he ends up basically being convinced because they say, hey, look how much money you're going to make. If you, <laughs> all you got to do is hand over the song. Uh, but it at least inspires him to write more things. So Simon writes two tracks, Punky's Dilemma and Overs, both of which also appear on bookends in addition to the graduate soundtrack. But Nichols was most or they might have been left off the soundtrack. I know there were there's a whole mix of songs in here. Some were written for the film, but ended up on bookends. Some they didn't want to use. Uh, but basically, Nichols was most taken by a song that was still a work in progress at the time and appears in a more complete version on bookends, which is the super famous Mrs. Robinson. So it's interesting that this situation basically caused one of their, you know, inspired Simon to write one of their biggest hits. Um, also at this time, Simon and Garfunkel, their contract with Columbia, the record label would cover all the costs of the sessions. So basically the two of them spent a bunch of time dragging everything out, trying to perfect everything, using all kinds of additional instrumentation on tracks. So that's why you get weird stuff like, you know, the synthesizer in there and all these different sounds. Cause basically the record label was like, well, will pay for everything and they were like oh very interesting <laughs> really <laughs> no i i think we should i think we should play a clip real quick i because I, this might be surprising for people who maybe don't they're not the biggest simon and garfunkel fan or or they don't know that much about them you know they know enough i feel like most people know that simon and garfunkel are this quiet folk duo but this is not the opening track of bookends but the second track of bookends called save the life of my child we're just going to play the first 30 seconds of this track and so you can hear what we're talking about when we talk about like this weird sort of juxtaposition between this folk music sound and this overproduced synthesizer thing that they were doing at the time With the song like You Don't Know Where Your Interest Lies, the first thing that I thought when I first heard it, and I'll be totally honest, before we started working on this episode, I had never heard the song before. I am I am just like most Simon and Garfunkel fans who maybe have never heard of this song ever because it's not on any of their records. When I first heard this song and I, I read the lyrics, I said, what was Paul Simon thinking with this? Because this is not a very Paul Simon song. When You know, this is, we're, we're going to get into the lyrics, but this song is basically an arrogant 
like asshole guy basically talking about how this woman should love him even if she thinks that she shouldn't. It's almost like the folk cock rock. It's like <laughs> it's like if Nickelback wrote a cock uh, a folk song. I I don't know if this if that makes any sense to anyone, but but that's what I thought when I when I listened to the song and heard the lyrics. I was just like, what was Paul Simon thinking? And maybe that's why the song didn't end up on the record. Maybe he was embarrassed, but I don't know, but <laughs> Yeah, and even the sound, I mean, it's it still sounds like a Simon and Garfunkel track, but almost sounds like they're attempting to do like a British invasion sort of sound. And then also in the song, there's this totally out of the blue bridge where you, for a split second, are thinking, am I still even listening to the same track? So it might have been, I, I feel like, a variety of factors for you know, sitting there when you listen to the album, even though bookends is a little all over the place, this might've been a little too far out attitude wise. Um, and maybe a little bit sound wise. Yeah, but it, it's still a great song. Like it's definitely good. Like, obviously this is skipped on shuffle. We're not going to recommend you listen to a song that we don't think is good. This is a really good song. It's really well written. It's, it's, it, it, it is very sporadic, I guess, in that, like you're talking about, the bridge just kind of comes out of nowhere and it becomes this like coffee shop jazz song out of nowhere. And, and that's really bizarre and whatever, but it's still really interesting. Like this is the kind of song that it's full of surprises. You know, like the lyrics are surprising. The sound is surprising. Uh, from from like a, a guitar playing sound, uh, a guitar player standpoint, like there's a lot of interesting chord progressions in this song that switch and stuff. It's 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 a very creative, interesting song. It's just that it might be one of those songs where it's it's too messy for its own good kind of thing, but it's, mm. it's, it's still good. And so I don't want anyone to think if anyone finishes this episode of skipped on shuffle and is like, God, those guys hated that song. You will be wrong. <laughs> we do not hate this song. It's just, it's just so different that it's, it's impossible not to talk about how different it is compared to the rest of what they've done in their, in their entire history. Riff will turn you around, obviously. You're going to blow it, but you don't know it. Scott describes it as an arrogant song, and I totally agree. And again, that doesn't make it a bad song, but just kind of interesting, and it is super catchy. So here's how the lyrics start out. You don't know that you love me. You don't know, but I know that you do. You may think you're above me, yeah. What you think isn't always true. So again, telling someone, here's how you feel. Here's how you feel. And if you don't know that you feel this way, you're stupid. <laughs> and it's and it's funny, too, because you know we, we talk a lot about skipped on shuffle about how people fall into the role as being a narrator or taking on a specific, you know, character or trying to envision, you know, em empathize with someone or imagine someone else's life. And I don't know, for me, for this song, I almost wonder if this is just Paul Simon speaking freely <laughs> because I mean, a lot of the time, and that's why, you know, in the history, I wanted to add in that, that quip he makes to Garfunkel at the rock and roll hall of fame thing because he does have this kind of arrogant streak in him. And I almost feel like if this is this is just a little bit more honest 
Paul Simon, at least at, at the time, or at least in the context of his, his relationship with Garfunkel. Cause it's not only him, you, you know, like the, you know, Mike Nichols goes to him and is like, Hey, I love your songs. And he's immediately just like, Oh, that's film. That's trash. I don't want to sell my songs for that. Um, I think he ends up, you know, getting into a conversation with Nichols. It's not only about the money and he liked the script and, you know, liked him as a person, but I think it, it gives you some indication. There's something there, especially to be, you know, in your mid twenties telling record execs like, Hey, I'm only going to make albums about the ideas that I want to make. And you're going to, pay for everything <laughs> and you're gonna let me you're gonna let me you know take as much time as i want and you know i'm on the same level as like you know the beatles and bob dylan and everyone and you need to like recognize that and i feel like that's kind of what we get in the song yeah it's it's like paul simon's id just like going out of control which, yeah which which you know is is an interesting thing especially because like you mentioned the relationship between simon and garfunkel the people you know, Paul Simon is is writing all of these songs. Like he's coming up with pretty much everything, and all Art Garfunkel does is sing harmony backup on on those songs. And so, you know, the the scale is 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 not equal in this group. This is not a democratic duo of two guys who are equally contributing to the group as it stands. You know, Paul Simon is definitely doing most of the work and Art Garfunkel is in Paul Simon's eyes, probably kind of like a leech. And that's why he makes this quip on the rock and roll hall of fame stage. That's why he doesn't want to work with them that much and all this stuff. And that's why his, his solo output has been so much more prolific than his Simon and Garfunkel output. So, you know, and it's interesting because even from the lyrics were, I think made to feel that it's Paul Simon speaking to a woman who, you know, wants to be romantic. He thinks wants to be romantically involved with him. Um, and the only hint we get to that, though, is in the, the next verse is don't try to debate me. You should know that I'm womanly wise. I've been reading some pickup chick books <laughs> and I, I know I know what the ladies are thinking. <laughs> but I think it's also interesting to think in this context, because aside from that one line, this could be about other relationships, like not necessarily a romantic relationship, I think. Yeah, so so in, Maybe th- there's a there's another verse later on where he says, "You're just a game I like to play. You may think that we're friends, all right, but I won't let friendship get in my way." Now that could be something along the lines of, you know, I'm going to be in a relationship with you. I'm not going to be put in the friend zone, basically. You know, <laughs> you're not going to friend zone me. Or it could be seen as something like, you know, uh, I. I am going to achieve whatever I want to achieve and I'm not going to let our partnership, whether it be a friendship or a relationship or, or in the case of Simon and Garfunkel, you know, a working relationship, I'm not going to let that get in my way, you know? So it, it, it could be seen as a lot of ways, but yeah, I, I agree. The only thing that sort of sets it up is being like, Oh, this is about a relationship between a character of Paul Simon or Paul Simon in general and a woman is because he says you should know that I'm womanly wise. So, yeah. And I mean, you don't know that you love me as well, but it's, you know, friendships have love, you know, other <laughs> relationships have love. And, and it could also be, you know, like saying to the record label, like, Hey, who loves you, baby? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, you know, you know, I'm, I'm probably like going way off the, <laughs> I just imagine Way off the road young, here, but. young Paul Simon walking into a to a record studio it's like, you know with, you this, like with his with his Ray Bans on, looking like Tom Cruise from Risky Business, being like, "Hey, baby, 
you know you love me. <laughs> With Art Garfunkel waiting outside. Like <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it's 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 an interesting song. You don't know where your interest lies. It's 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 an interesting song in the Simon and Garfunkel catalog. And I think it's cool because this is the type of song that Simon and Garfunkel fans who maybe haven't heard it are going to be very surprised to hear because they're going to be like, wow, like this sounds like a classic Simon and Garfunkel song, but it's so different than what I'm expecting. And for people who aren't big Simon and Garfunkel fans, they're going to hear this and they're going to be like, wow, this is, this is interesting in that it's something that I expect from Simon and Garfunkel, but with a twist that makes it feel like it's not quite Simon and Garfunkel. So it's just, it's just such an anomaly in this whole, in this whole career. You know, it's like if you buy an essential or not essential, but like a, like a greatest hits collection from Simon and Garfunkel, it's, it's pretty cohesive. Like it's pretty much like, Oh, folk track, folk track with a little bit of instrumentation, you know, beautiful harmonies, like songs about America, songs about, you know, how I love you and how we're going to make it, make it through this and all this stuff. And then there's this one, it's just kind of like there, you know? (laughs) And then the last part we should talk about with the song is the bridge, which is, you know, we spent so much time talking about how the the verse and whatever chorus, if there is one, they seem to pretty much be one and the same. This bridge kind of comes out of nowhere and turns into, as we mentioned, this kind of jazzy lounge kind of feel to it. But I think it's interesting because in the context of, of what we've been saying, if this is Paul Simon's arrogance run amok this is him kind of taking a step back and might be his conscience kind of stepping in so the lyrics of the bridge are indications indicate running the same riff will turn you around obviously you're going to blow it but you don't know it so it's interesting that despite all the arrogance we get throughout the song there's some recognition of you're just doing the same things that you've always been doing that have pushed people away and this isn't going to work for you but then it just hops right back into <laughs> right back into the verse. <laughs> but it's it's something that I feel like adds a little bit of a deeper layer of the song because it could just be, you know, this this arrogant song. You don't know that you love me, but you know I do. But with that little bridge in there, I feel like gives it a little bit of a deeper twist that Paul Simon as a writer, and again whether he's you know taking on a persona or writing as himself, you know, adds some depth to whoever the narrator or character of the song is. And, and even that's kind of interesting to just sort of switch voices in the middle there. Or maybe Garfunkel was supposed to do more and sing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, the best way to sum this up is, is somehow it still makes sense as a Simon and Garfunkel song, but it's also a, a bit of an outlier. What you think isn't always true And you don't know where your you interest lies You don't know where your interest lies You don't know where your interest lies You don't know where your interest lies Usually at the end of the episodes of Skipped on Shuffle, we we talk about our own personal connections to the song or to the group or or, or what have you. But I'm going to 
go go a little bit off off the off the rails here and talk about how I first made a, a, a connection with Simon and Garfunkel that wasn't through Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, it, on the soundtrack to the movie Wayne's World 2, which came out in 1993, there's a cover version of Mrs. Robinson by a 90s band called the Lemonheads. And as you would expect, because it's the 90s and the grunge movement is huge, it's a loud song with like crunchy guitars and this like, you know, but it's still Mrs. Robinson. It's still got the doot, 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 doot. You know, it's still got that whole thing, but it's just louder and punkier and, and, and what have you. So I'm just going to play you a quick clip. This is just the first like 30 seconds of the song or whatever, just so you guys can get an idea of what this version of Mrs. Robinson sounds like. It's you, Mrs. So I'm 10 years old, I'm watching Wayne's World 2, and I hear this song, and I say to myself, I recognize that song, you know, because Mrs. Robinson is such a huge, famous song. And I said, I, I recognize that, but it's it doesn't sound anything like what I remember Mrs. Robinson sounding like. And that was kind of like, you know, as a 10-year-old boy, that was like my my first kind of understanding that just because a song sounds a certain way when it's originally recorded doesn't mean that the song doesn't have the life to be able to become something different. And, you know, the, the kind the concept that a great, great song will sound good, no matter whether it's played on an acoustic guitar, a piano, a synthesizer, a huge loud metal band, an orchestra, whatever, like a great song is a great song. And if you channel it through other genres of music and other sounds, it's still going to be great. And that was what I kind of got through this, this Lemonheads cover. Now the cover itself is really not that great. So it's, it shouldn't be, don't take this as being like a great example of this. There are definitely a lot of other great examples of cover songs that elevate the original source material, such as like, uh, with a little help from my friends by Joe Cocker or something like that, where it's like, oh, this is better than the original. It's taking it to a new height. But uh, so don't think that the Lemonheads did that with Mrs. Robinson because they definitely did not. But it was this kind of eye-opening thing for me as a 10-year-old boy because I was, you know, kind of, I was so neck deep in the 90s rock sound that I couldn't really understand older music because it didn't sound like what I was listening to at the time. So this was kind of like my first eye-opening thing of being like, oh, just because a song was recorded, you know, 20, 25 years ago and sounds different than what I'm listening to on the radio doesn't mean that it's not also a great song. So my first introduction to like what Simon and Garfunkel is and what they do was kind of through this, this cover song. And I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who have had similar things where they've heard a cover song and said, wow, that's really good. And then they investigated, discovered it was a cover and then started listening to the original artist a little bit more than maybe they would. Um, but that's what happened for me with Simon and Garfunkel. So I figured I would mention that as being like my direct connection to, to the group. When I think of Simon and Garfunkel, I always think of the song, The Leaves That Are Green, which is kind of an early one. Paul Simon did a version on his solo album that we had talked about earlier in the episode, his, his debut record. And I connect with the song so much because 
when early on in my relationship with my wife, when we we went out on kind of what our, was our first date, I talked about this a little bit in the Leonard Cohen episode because that's when I also discovered Leonard Cohen. But we were out and about shopping and we're in a store and leaves that are green started to play. And it was one of those moments where you, it's a song about how life is moving on and changing. You know, some, some of the lyrics are, I was 21 years when I wrote the song. I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long. Time hurries on and leaves that are green turn to brown. So base, basic concept. But there was something weird about standing there in the moment, embarking, you know, on this new relationship and realizing how much of my life is changing. And here's like a song about change and also feeling like it's just music playing in a store so i'm probably the only one who kind of like even notices that it's this song that's playing at the time and i don't know it's just a strange experience to realize how much your life is shifting in the moment and hearing a song that so like perfectly reflects that it was just one of those you know perfect unions of of everything every time i hear simon and garfunkel i'm always just like where's my where's my leaves that are green because that's like one of my favorites um and i love all the other stuff too and i feel like it i think i maybe it's that moment but i also just think in general i kind of just have nostalgia for simon and garfunkel my parents had you know all the original records and stuff so it was something that i had heard quite frequently hence i was somebody who could recognize leaves that are green which you know your average casual fan might not recognize you'd probably hear it and be like oh this sounds like a paul simon song but it's something that i just feel like i've they've kind of always been around and i've been listening to so it's always and maybe it's just folk music in general but it's always one of those just really comforting to hear paul simon and art garfunkel for me so anytime i just kind of want to like chill and be peaceful i put this on although i i don't usually put on uh, you don't know where your interest lies usually that <laughs> that doesn't i don't, doesn't I don't, I don't know if that fits in with the playlist <laughs> uh but you know this this is like such a great band with all kinds of different stuff and it's i feel like sometimes they get overlooked and we talked about this at, at the beginning of the episode with you forget just like how huge this band was and how they still continue to be huge and these songs continue to have a life beyond them and this you know whether it's the Lemonheads doing you know this cover of mrs robinson it's just interesting that how long these songs have endured for and continue to still be enjoyable for people even you know my age coming you know decades after their career had ended discovering you know their music and and still listening to it and still enjoying it Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.